I do believe we are live. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Break the Rules live stream. I'm your host, Lev Polyakov, at Levpo on Twitter, and we are here with none other than the fantastic Aubrey de Grey, Dr. Aubrey de Grey, who was the founder of the brand new, this is why I uh, got this to happen, and uh, Gennady particularly got this to happen, Lev Foundation. So when I heard that, since my name is Lev, I figured, you know what, this is fate this telling is fate telling me to uh, get get this done. So here we are. You are a pioneer in life extension research, something that is very uh, close to my heart because of the people who are in my life who I want to uh, you know, have lived for a long time as well as myself. And in general, I think a lot of people are very fascinated by where exactly can we go from here as far as biology goes as far as uh, stem cell regeneration all of these fascinating subjects and i think people are also kind of concerned about what they don't know on the internet people's minds start to wander people start to assume the very worst especially in these last couple of years in terms of what exact mechana machinations can be done to people through the same kind of technological usage that would also be able to empower people so that was why i wanted to make this stream in the first place and before we get started, I want to introduce the rest of the wonderful panelists. First, uh, the wonderful Gennady Stolyarov II, coming back to BTR for I don't know what time this is, but uh, it's always a great pleasure to see you. And again, you are the reason why this is happening tonight. And we have uh, oldcomer Lucas. Once again, well, you were only here one time, but Lucas of the Verse and Lucas podcast, one of my favorite new podcasts to listen to. I highly recommend you guys check it out as well. And last but not least, we have the wonderful YouTuber, Dentavius. Thank you so much for coming in, brother. You do a lot of YouTube videos related to going down the iceberg, kind of that topic mm -hmm. that I was just talking about. What exactly lies beneath? People are very fascinated by it, but it's very important that we have a very sober understanding of what exactly we're dealing with in the world. And this is why it is a great blessing, once again, to have Dr. Aubrey de Grey here. So the first question before I get started, before I bring it to the panel is, why did you name it after me? <laughs> so yeah I, I i wish i could really say that i didn't name it after you but honestly we didn't um uh so of course we don't actually call it lev foundation we call it lev foundation and mm. that stands for longevity escape velocity which is a concept that i came up with nearly 20 years ago uh, essentially is the main concept that describes why we have a realistic shot at not only bringing uh, perhaps another couple of decades of additional healthy life to a lot of people who are alive today, but actually bringing a truly indefinite amount of healthy life through incremental subsequent uh, improvements on these things. However, you know, I can't really complain about, uh, about you having called it Lev Foundation, not only because it's your name, but also because when I came on the screen, uh, and knowing the kind of show this is that I saw uh, Dantavius, I thought I actually read it as Dantavirus. And, uh, and, uh, um, I get and, that a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, I was wondering, yeah. <laughs> and uh, once again, before we get started, be sure to subscribe, hit the like button, hit the bell. I always got to say it. I always got to always be shilling. A, B, S. 
So <laughs> the first person I want to go to actually is Lucas. Lucas, you were writing uh, to me in the DMs a very interesting question that you have for uh, Dr. DeGray. Uh, share it with uh, the entire audience. Let's go for it. Let's get this started. Yeah, so I guess uh, my big question whenever I hear about the longevity stuff is uh, it seems that the discussion is generally geared towards avoiding death, which is uh, obviously like integral to the process of not dying. But then you wind up with like a bunch of little inconveniences that wind up getting chipped away. Like uh, teeth are always the main thing that I go to. So if you manage to live for like 150 years or 200 years or something like that, but we continue with normal levels of dental wear and everybody winds up with like uh, teeth that are like ground down to stubs or we still can't figure out because, you know, like the process of regrowing a tooth, as far as I understand it, it's still uh, pretty far off and dental implants aren't exactly what uh, I think anybody is hoping for as the pinnacle of dental technology. So it seems like there's kind of a an issue there or with eyes how uh the, like the lenses of your eye eventually get oxidized as the years go on and they become less pliable so the muscles that are like trying to pull them around and allowing you to focus on things either close in or far away wind up uh having to work harder or eventually just not being able to do it at all so what happens if you get to the point of uh like living until you're 200 functionally but you're broken and how do you avoid that right so um of course, you know it is frustrating, uh, really, uh, in a lot of a lot of times to me, and it has been over many many years, that there is so much of this kind of um, you know focus on what I predict in terms of how long people can live. I mean, I understand that you know it's it's the glamorous soundbite, but at the end of the day, I feel like it's just you know surprising that I have to constantly emphasize that longevity is simply a side effect of health, both in terms of what we want and in terms of what we can actually achieve by medicine. There is simply no way we're going to be able to keep people in a good, in a, in a poor state of health for a long time. They are, it's just like being sick is risky. Um, uh, but also, of course, as you very rightly say, this applies to quality of life. It means that we wouldn't want to, um, to do this. And of course, it applies not only to teeth and eyes, but it also applies and most people worry so much about the brain. They say, you know, well, it wouldn't be much fun for people to be increasingly demented if they were in a youthful body. What's the point of that? This is all true. Now, the specific examples that you raise, the t uh, teeth and lenses, are interesting ones because here I think most people would say that we've done pretty well with simple technology. You know, implants are not ideal. You're completely right. And eventually, we're definitely going to want to be able to regrow teeth using stem cell technology. This is already very much a burgeoning research area that's moving forward. But I think, you know, um, if you gave people the choice between having everything in their body useful except for the teeth versus having everything in their body useful except the brain, they would choose the former, um, right? Um, and it kind of applies the same thing to the eyes. I mean, LASIK is pretty good these days. In fact, uh, you know, that's actually the one aspect of aging that I personally am significantly suffering from over the past decade or so. I've found that I do have significant presbyopia. And um, honestly... Oh, what, what, what is that for the people who don't know? Thank you, Laz. Uh, um, presbyopia is simply the uh, uh, increasing lack of accommodation, lack of ability to see things close up as a result of the um, deformation of the lens of the eye that you do when, in order to change its focal length so that you can see things. 
uh, that becomes harder as people get older. Anyway, so yes, yeah, so um, LASIK is designed to fix that. And uh, the reason I've basically put it off is because LASIK keeps getting better. You know, it keeps getting to a point where it continues to be, um, you know, we're, we're, looking at, we're looking at kind of um, dynamic LASIK now where you can actually uh, alter the, uh, the alteration that LASIK does to your lens so as to continue to make it optimal as your lens becomes increasingly inflexible. So, yeah, I mean, these are things that are important, but to me, you know, what, I'm, what I hear from people, not only what I think myself, um, the really important things are to make sure that the life-threatening aspects and the aspects that are really debilitating and cannot be fixed by simple measures, simple mechanical measures, those are the things that matter the most. Before I go to Dentavius, Lucas, would you like to follow that up with any uh, additional question? Uh, I guess on the eye thing, uh, so I've, I've heard recently that there's a surgery where they can actually replace the entire lens with a synthetic material and go in and they, they have something that uh, not as good as like a youthful natural lens, but it's better than like a 90 year old's natural lens or something like that. And I have some relatives who have gotten this surgery and they've said that it's been really good. But I don't know. I, I just always wonder about, uh, you know, to what extent is there going to be some sort of weird second order consequence from stuff like this? And, yeah, I, I think it's all like you're, you're totally right. Obviously, everyone's going to prefer uh, some sort of strange synthetic lens in their eye to like total blindness. And they're all going to say, I would rather be blind than completely dead or demented. Uh, this is just like the stuff that I worry about as like an extremely neurotic person. <laughs> I understand. So, uh, Dentavius, we're going to be going a little bit uh, further down the rabbit hole with uh, your particular inquiry. So why don't you take it away? I don't have to say anything, but uh, be sure to sneed those super chats for uh, later on. We're going to be doing super chats towards the end. But that's all I have to say, Dentavius. Bring it on. I have. Okay, my question's kind of two parts. Do you know Peter Thiel? That's my first question. Yes, I do, though I haven't had much contact with him in the past few years. Okay. And is there any credence to the uh and is he if do you know if he's still doing the young blood transfusions? I have very little reason to believe that he ever actually did any young trans yeah. blood transfusions. Um a number yeah. of people, and he may be one of them, did a kind of um, not exactly a blood transfusion, but the injection of a small amount of plasma from mm -hmm. young donors, um, which is something that arose from early experiments done in rats and mice, mm -hmm. where um, they were actually surgically joined together. And uh, there's some benefit to it, or at least we believe there might be, depending mm -hmm. on, you know, it's in, if you're a rat anyway, though of course we don't mm -hmm. know very much about humans. Um, uh, but where this whole process is going has gone a long way beyond that, beyond mm -hmm. infusions. Now we're talking about actual exchange. So not only do you inject young stuff, you also take out old stuff. Mm -hmm. Indeed, a lot of people now believe that taking out the old stuff matters more than what you put in. Mm -hmm. You can put in basically water, you know, and uh, you can end up still with a rejuvenating effect. Mm -hmm. Oh, so yeah, just like straight up bloodletting? Well, no. Um, Taking it back to the 1400s. <laughs> it's a little different from that. Um, so the way it's being done recently is it's not exactly water that you put in. What you put in is 
first of all, something that has the right osmolarity so that it doesn't like cause osmotic difficulties with your cells. But also you put in one particular protein, the, the single most abundant protein in blood, which is called albumin. You mm. put in a bunch of that. The reason you have to do that basically is because albumin... Um, you know, you really need it for a lot of reasons. And if you take out even a significant amount of your blood and you also take out that amount of albumin, then just it takes the time it takes for the body to resynthesize the stuff you've taken out is problematic. So you avoid that by putting stuff back in. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember uh, when they were doing those experiments, the original ones on rats, I think there actually wasn't an exchange of blood. It was actually they were stitching them like their um, circulatory systems together yep. right that's exactly right it's called parabiosis and then when you yeah. do it with a young animal and an old animal it's called heterochronic parabiosis mm -hmm. so yes it means they were exchanging blood but they were exchanging mm -hmm. it because of the surgery right. well, we're going to get a little bit more into exchanging probably with dentavius's second question but before that related to the blood what exactly is it in the old blood that needs to be gotten rid of yeah we wish we knew so this whole area of research actually began in the Soviet Union decades and decades ago, more than 50 years ago. And it was also gotten about, but then it was revived uh, nearly 20 years ago by a couple of professors at Stanford who set a few of their postdocs on it. And um, there was an enormously um, uh, substantial uh, uh, amount of progress very quickly, the first definitive paper that came out and got people really excited came out in 2005 and ever since then there's at least half a dozen labs around the world that are now you know they made their name just from that group and um so it's, it's a very big research area and the reason it's a big research area is because that exact question that you just asked has turned out to be very hard to answer um you you know you can you can try to you know fractionate and partition the stuff you're taking out or indeed the stuff you're putting in and try and figure out, you know, which parts of it are important. And I'm, honestly, it's been a little bit of a surprise that this question has been so hard to answer. Um, I think really a lot of it must come down to individual variation between different different animals. Uh, you know, that different animals benefit from different things or are harmed by different things. But we will we will get there. It's a very burgeoning mm. area. It well, seems you... it'd probably be easier to just take out all this stuff anyway, instead of worrying about separating out any specific aspect of it. Kind of. I mean, the point is, if you take out the stuff that's bad, but you don't know what stuff is bad, so you take out a lot of stuff, then most of what you take out is probably going to be good. And, you know, that might, that, so the net effect might be negative. So you've got to have some degree of understanding of why you're taking out what you're taking out. Oh, I was talking about just the purely the, uh, like the physical ease of it. <laughs> not, well, not at all about the health just uh oh it's easy to just <laughs> yeah no, they've, they've, they've kind of fixed that part so there are clever dialysis machines that uh can fractionate stuff on the way out and then just circulate the stuff back in that you want to that you want to circulate back in so uh to Dentavius, the second question, which I will want him to answer, but first I want to make note that there were two things that were said Soviet Union and animals, and I'm going to leave mm -hmm. the rest to Dentavius. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I think like a lot of the uh, messed up experiments that, you know, we talk about today kind of like either go back to the Nazis or the Soviet Union. Because, yeah, so like me and Lev were talking about the. Uh, what were they called? Humanzies? 
yeah, the, the human Z's. experiments. There was a Soviet yeah. experiment where they got uh, volunteers. Not really sure how they found those female yeah. volunteers. I don't, I don't think they were volunteers. First of yeah. all, yeah, Vo- volunteers. Vol- yes. Yeah, to try, yeah, to try and birth a human animal <laughs> hybrid with uh, what I believe was an orangutan, not a chimpanzee. And mm. from there on in, there's been all kinds of stories having to do with, uh, especially like in China, various human-animal hybrids mm-hmm. that were purported to have been created. Personally, chimeras. I d- yeah, chimeras. I don't know whether or not this has been successful, but I, I do know that there are certain things that have already been done with the splicing of DNA of various creatures together. So I'm curious, uh, Dr. DeGray, what your particular... Um, understanding is on what exactly we're dealing with here yeah you, you won't be making a human orangutan hybrids anytime soon there's the, the you know people people get terribly exercised about how similar the dna is the genome is between different primates but the differences are quite different enough to mm-hmm. absolutely preclude any kind of possibility of any kind of hybrid now when it comes to the lesser examples of this having to do with i believe it was combining spider uh spider dna with goat dna to produce a certain kind of goat's milk if i am not mistaken there are (laughs) examples of this sort of uh dna being spliced together where exactly is this now and where does this have the potential to go right yes so putting an individual gene or two from one species into another is a completely different matter because there, you know, we've all got DNA, and we're all made of the same genomic material, right? Um, and indeed, in the laboratory, there are various examples of this that are totally routine. For example, there's a protein in jellyfish that is fluorescent. It's called green fluorescent protein. And it turns out to be a really useful tool in medical research, in biological research in general. You can basically engineer the um, the, 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 the part of the gene that encodes the actual protein and stick it next to some DNA that determines when the gene is going to be turned on. And you can use this as a kind of, um, uh, a kind of marker, a kind of, a kind of signal for when something is happening and when it's not and where it's happening and where it's not. And this is a very common tool. It became, it, it became, um, uh, it, it, it was first pioneered at least 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago now, and everybody uses this. And it's just one example. So, yeah, and similarly, yes, absolutely, you could put a, a gene that is involved in the synthesizing of silk um, into another species, and for all I know, you might get the um, gene to work. So, yeah, absolutely, that's, that's a completely different thing from making hybrids between species. Now, I want to get Gennady in on this as well, but before that, I don't know if either Dentavius or Lucas... I'd be curious where exactly we can look at this several years from now as far as certain dangers that people have. Because whenever people hear about this DNA splicing, obviously human-animal hybrids, chimeras, that's a lot sexier. That's a lot more romantic. Alex Jones stuff, man. Sure, absolutely. If Alex Jones was here right now, he'd be going crazy. (laughs) But the idea here is that we have a lot of potential to do a lot of very interesting things. People don't focus that much on the good things. People focus on... Mm -hmm how is this going to result in abominations against God? How is this going to result in living in the kind of uh, dystopian life where everything could just be mishmashed around and creating these uh, horrors? Now, that's obviously a great exaggeration, but Mm -hmm. uh, Lucas, 
since you are also within the part of the internet that likes uh, speculating on a lot of these various things. I'm not saying you do, but I'm just, oh, you, yeah. you know I'm, what I'm talking I'm not about. known for my future takes, definitely, but uh, I actually, I get a decent amount of hate over in my sphere because I actually love the gene splicing shit. Uh, and I think that largely, yeah, I mean, there's there's all sorts of like ungodly abominations that I'm sure we'll create that are going to be like some sort of uh, massive ethical conundrum. But for the most part, it seems like the people who are, really gung-ho about the gene splicing stuff are willing to sort of dedicate their bodies to science and uh it's kind of like we were talking about with matt where like the clinical trial process in uh in america winds up slowing everything down to the point where i think it's actually damaging to people and we need these sort of like insane experimental people to uh go ham on themselves with weird gene modifications to get anywhere with rapidity because like at some point people who are actually in need of some sort of life-saving problem, they're not going to wait for the FDA to approve the thing, right? They're going to either mm -hmm. go to another country and get some weird experimental surgery, or they're going to start like injecting random bathtub chemicals in themselves based on some sort of forum post from like 2007, <laughs> where a guy said that it cured him of his whatever. So uh, I think it's fine to give these people the option to go ahead with all sorts of wacky genetic splicing experimentations if they want to. And uh, I I don't like my only issue is uh, if we create some sort of a situation where like a predatory company decides to trick everyone into doing it or, or a government, which we can get to a little bit later. But yeah. uh, on to uh, on to Janati here. Yes, we were one of our favorite things to talk about whenever you're here is reminiscing about the uh, Ben Zion burger, which oh. uh, Dr. DeGray, I don't know if you know what we're referring to here, but uh that would be, at least I know for you, where the line is drawn on what people should be allowed to do with their body. Where else? Well, before we get to where else the line is drawn, can you give people who don't know, uh, because this is kind of an interesting story, the background behind what I'm talking about. But after that, where else would you say are the lines drawn for you as far as what, sh what should not be allowed to be done with uh, gene editing? Yes, and I will delve into the subject shortly. I wanted to make a few remarks regarding what has been said. So first sure. of all, Lucas, I agree with you on your policy stance of allowing people the freedom, the option to pursue treatments that could involve genetic modification because various gene therapies are available today. Indeed, some of them have been approved for rare diseases, but one of the most heroic, in my view, people within the longevity community is a woman named Liz Parrish. And Liz Parrish was actually our U.S. Transhumanist Party vice presidential nominee in 2020. But five years before that, in 2015, she distinguished herself by becoming the first person to receive a combination gene therapy with the attempt to reverse her biological aging. And the gene therapy was intended to express telomerase and folistatin. And she had to go to Colombia to get it done, essentially because in the United States, she couldn't even get that therapy done on herself. And she would not find a doctor who was willing to undertake that kind of experiment in the United States for fear of sanction by the FDA or by medical boards or by other regulatory entities. So I think it's essential to 
allow people the freedom to experiment. And indeed, if we allow people the freedom to experiment in the United States, they could benefit from all of the safety infrastructure that exists here that might not exist in certain other countries. But Liz Parrish is doing fine. She looks very young. Uh, indeed, I have known her since that time. She announced for the first time of the conclusion of this gene therapy trial in one of my YouTube discussion panels. And I think since that time, she does look biologically younger than she did when I met her. But that is, of course, quite anecdotal. It's not scientific evidence. It's my subjective impressions. But you have people who are doing these experiments in very good faith and in a sophisticated manner. So they're not just going to inject bathtub chemicals. These are people who do try to take every precaution because they care about their lives more than any regulatory agency would. So on that point, uh, I think, Lucas, you and I are aligned. What Dantavius mentioned regarding Soviet experiments on animals, I just want to make an interesting observation. When I was a child in Belarus, former Soviet Union, at about ages five or six, I had access to an old Soviet textbook on physiology from the 1950s. And it was very interesting for me to read that textbook in Russian as a child. It was kind of written for a younger audience, but it had a section in there where the title of the section was a question, is old age a disease? And it actually described some of the mid 20th century Soviet experiments that were performed, like the ability to keep a heart beating outside the body or the dog heads that were kept uh, artificially alive for uh, over 100 days. World's and first furries. It was interesting to me, uh, though I didn't at the time find the experiments to be morbid. Now, I was always averse to death ever since I learned about death as a child. Uh, I considered um, it to be the What age did you injustice. find out about death? When I was four years old, I oh my asked God. my parents, essentially, what comes next? And then what? And then what? And eventually I was told, well, then people die. And I asked, well, what yeah. is that? And I was told, well, they just keep existing. And I realized, well, if they hadn't done anything wrong, if they hadn't uh, committed a great offense... Why is it justified for them to stop existing? So mm. ever since that time, including when I was reading the Soviet physiology textbooks, I was thinking, well, that's great that they kept those dog heads alive for longer than they would have been alive otherwise, uh, even though they were dog heads. Uh, but nonetheless, I think in that society, for all of its faults, there were not some of the same moral reservations about radical human life extension that exists in many Western countries today. And I think one could make that statement about Russian society during our own time as well. It's not a coincidence that a lot of life extension supporters come from the former Soviet Union. Uh, but in regard to your main question, Lev, about the Ben Zion burger. So uh, here are my thoughts on this. Throughout human history, there have evolved certain taboos of human behavior, many of which 
aren't quite justified because even in pre-scientific times, uh, people observed that if you engaged in certain kinds of activities, the consequences would be so bad that essentially it was unwise to uh, consider even venture into that territory. Uh, so every society that survived, uh, except some isolated tribes in wilderness areas, has had a taboo against cannibalism. And why is that? Because if you consume human tissues, you're going to get some diseases. Trichinosis. Like diseases. Uh, a whole host of possible ailments. And I think that would apply to any consumption of human tissue, whether or not a human gets killed in the process, it doesn't matter. The taboo was absolute, and it was absolute for a good reason. Does this happen in other animals? Well, uh, I think I'm not an expert in biology, but uh, I think there are a lot of animals who would experience similar issues if they tried to cannibalize on their own kind. But I am quite fond of the thinking of Friedrich Hayek, who was a great Austrian economist and social theorist. And he had this understanding that there could be emergent orders that occur in society, even though they weren't designed and they weren't necessarily implemented through one person's rational thinking. Nonetheless, these evolved social orders may have fundamental reasons behind them. They may or may not be obsoleted by the progress of technology, but the fact that there has been such an absolute taboo against certain activities, including cannibalism or incest as another example, is not something that we should take lightly. It's not something that we should say, oh, just because we can conceive of a situation where there's an exception where that rule doesn't make sense, uh, that means uh, full steam ahead with that. Mm -hmm. uh, I would actually have severe moral reservations about those kinds of activities. And that's why the Ben Zion burger uh, upset me and upset a lot of people. In the well, for those who don't know who Ben Zion is, he was a candidate for the United States Transhumanist Party uh, presidential position. And then uh, he ended up having a uh, split afterwards. Or was the split because of him creating a burger out of his own flesh? No, the split happened beforehand, and I think mm. this is very important uh, because we warned him several months beforehand not to undertake that experiment, and we thought he had complied with our warning. But what happened then was uh, he essentially attempted an internal coup, and uh, he was foiled in doing that. And after he was foiled, he had this falling out with us, and several days later, he... Uh, had this uh, publicity stunt of his. So it wasn't because of this that he got expelled. It's after he got expelled, he engaged in this kind of behavior, I think because he felt liberated from uh, the moral strictures that existed within the U.S. Transhumanist Party. Indeed. And for those who don't know what happened, he uh, cloned uh, his own flesh and he ended up eating that flesh in the form of a burger patty, but it was too small to really consider it to be a burger patty. It was just like, I don't know, just like some crumbs of protein. But uh, oh. bef before we move on, because I do want to get back to Dr. DeGray. Wait, 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 yes. wait. I, I, cheese yes. or no cheese? <laughs> it, it was a very crude experiment. Uh, and I think 
from the standpoint of what can be usefully done with gene editing technology or cloning technology, uh, most scientific experiments today are more sophisticated than what he did. So uh, I would say what we have to worry about isn't the advancement of our scientific capabilities in this regard. There are always going to be people who use poor judgment. That's not anything new. We just have to worry about people using poor judgment in new ways. But uh, I don't see that as a reason to restrict the scientific mm -hmm. progress. It's all about how it's applied. And if it's applied for human benefit and human well-being, then I'm completely in support of it. Well, Dr. DeGray, what would you say would be certain lines in the sand for yourself where you would not want people to venture when it comes to gene editing? I honestly don't think about things like that. And the reason I don't is because I am ultimately a humanitarian. I'm interested in improving the human condition, which basically means, for me, solving the problems of humanity. And problems really are defined relative to people who don't have those problems. So in the case of aging, you know, young adults don't have the problem of being sick, uh, whereas older adults increasingly do. And that's the problem I'm working on. So, um, you know, it's not as if the technologies that will be involved in um, bringing that about are in any sense uh, unique or unprecedented in the regard that you're describing, namely their ability to be applied to other, um, you know, in other ways, whether that be enhancement, like, you know, I don't know, maybe in due course, we'll be able to arrange for people to have gills or wings. Um, but I don't work on that. So, you know, I, I like to stick to what I know. Well, in order to uh, make this uh, a little bit more relevant to the people who do worry about this stuff, while you do not work on these uh, probable uh, doom-filled scenarios, you are somebody who is an expert on how the body works, how exactly these various uh, genes are activated. So mm -hmm. what would personally concern me is having a government, like let's say the government of China, being able to do the kind of gene editing not to create, let's say, smarter uh, people, but to create more obedient people to create people that would not be able to think and would not be able to become the next Aubrey de Grey, people mm -hmm. who would just fulfill a very particular purpose. And I think that really comes down to the fear that people have in general of messing with uh, genes, that that could be used to uh, make people into, uh, into a, a slave, like the title of this uh, video uh, is. How much is this concern something uh, that well that needs to be concerned about how much is it fantasy and if it's not fantasy where exactly are we when it comes to being able to alter people in that direction okay so um i want to give two answers first of all i want to answer the very first part of what you just suggested which is that i'm an expert on how the body works honestly i'm not an expert on how the body works and the reason i'm not is because nobody is there is a, an absolutely spectacular amount that we don't know. In fact, there's a teeny tiny amount that we do know about how the body works, any of us. And so my work is all about sidestepping that ignorance. It's all about um, allowing the body to carry on working by 
you know, res maintaining, restoring its structure at the molecular and cellular level, and without having to know the details of how that structure is being altered as a consequence of the body's normal operation over time in a manner that eventually causes our function, our physiological and cognitive functions to go downhill. Um, I am, I, 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 you know, this is really the big paradigm shift that I guess is the thing I'm best known for in the field is that 20 odd years ago, I came in and realized that, yeah, you know, I mean, we need to sidestep our ignorance or else you're just not going to get anywhere. Uh, so that's, that's a very important point. But coming back to the ethical question you're asking, uh, so as I said, I want to kind of couch this in the context of the ethical questions that we face across the whole of technology, whether it's in artificial intelligence or nanotechnology or whatever. All of these things have the potential to be uh, developed in manners that will give you know, unintended consequences. And therefore, those people who are at the cutting edge of these various fields have not only the duty, but also the inclination to oversee and to monitor the ways in which these technologies are being developed so as to minimize that risk. Now, some of these technologies have inherently more risk than others. So if we look at, for example, um, artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence, as it's often called these days, um, we can see that um, you know, there the, the needs to be discussion about what is often called a hard takeoff, namely the creation of um, artificial intelligences that are sufficiently autonomous that they can figure out how to be cleverer and cleverer and more and more autonomous and eventually we lose control of them, we can't even turn them off. And that could be dangerous if we don't tell them what to do properly. Um, you know, and this is, you know, a lot of people think that this is a risk that is not really a significant one but you never really know and of course in physics the same kind of thing has been happening you know there have been concerns that um uh, particle accelerators could create black holes that will consume the earth things like that um so uh, you know there's plenty of reasons to be for, for those at the cutting edge of any technological area to be paying attention to such things but when we come to gene editing i think we have the advantage that there's only so much that can happen quickly at the end of the day, the problem with technology, let's take nuclear weapons as the classical example, right? The problem with technologies, uh, you know, being ones that we might regret having invented, is it really only arises if those technologies satisfy a number of conditions all at the same time. Basically, there have to be technologies with which a small number of people can do a large amount of damage in a short amount of time. If any of those three conditions are not, are not satisfied, then the technology is basically safe because... Either it can be slowed down or it takes too many people so it can't happen in the first place or the amount of damage it does is just isn't enough to be particularly problematic in the first place. So, um, you know, I believe, you know, we're not in that position with biotechnology involving genetic engineering. We might very well be in that position with regard to bioweapons, but that's a very different question. Mm. What would you say if we go down a little bit into the nitty gritty, and I am definitely, if you're saying that you are not an expert on this, then I am far from being an expert on this a thousandfold. But that being said, what I'm curious about is how exactly would it be possible for genes to be edited in such a way that would alter a person's personality, a person's level of intelligence, as well as a person's obedience, let's say. Right. So a good thing is that we have absolutely no idea. Uh, you know, we uh, only, you know, just, um, you know, around the edges of 
figuring out the um, genetic interventions that we, we might want to make to keep people healthier for longer. For example, we have various ways in which we can look at the um, genetic differences between people and link those differences to um, certain disease states. There's uh, the classical example of the gene named apolipoprotein E, which exists in three different forms in the human population. And one of those forms is particularly conducive to both Alzheimer's disease and atherosclerosis to you know, earlier than otherwise onset of those things. Um, so this is something that it might be quite nice to be able to edit out of people. Um, including people who are already alive. Uh, however, um, we don't know anything about what genes um, influence intelligence or obedience or anything. In fact, there's still a very great deal of debate about whether genetic, um, you know, whether there's a genetic contribution of any significance at all there or whether it's 99% nurture. You know? So mm. honestly, it's not high on my agenda. Interesting. Well, that is uh, actually quite a relief for a lot of the people who are afraid that now the Chinese government is going to be creating these human-animal hybrids who are going to uh, pledge allegiance to Winnie the Pooh and all that. So <laughs> it's uh, it's good that we don't have to face this. But on this similar subject, I want to make sure that we get uh, from Dentavius or uh, Lucas. Are there any questions related to any of this doom and gloom stuff before we move on to the longevity? So let me know. I'm I'm a very low doom and gloomer guy. I'm very uh, press the green button, go for it, and uh, you know, very hands off in terms of my regulatory approach for anything. Eh, I'm kind of like in the middle. I don't want to like make a new Tower of Babel and just all of a sudden we got freaking clones walking around. You don't know who's a clone and who's real anymore. But I, I mean, obviously that's that's like an extreme. I scenario. sort of have a really. Uh, like my view of regulation is essentially the same as uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's in that I believe it either allows you to go faster or slow you down, but the place you go is going to be the same either way. Yeah. I mean, that's like a great guy to uh, <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. after. Well, I will note with regard to clones, clones mm. are separate individuals and quite often clones are less biologically similar to the original individual than uh, two identical twins are. So mm -hmm. if well, identical yeah. twins are treated as separate people, each with their own rights, each with their own individualities, then I don't see any difference between yeah. that and biological clones. Well, because the clones we have today, and correct me if I'm wrong, aren't like in the movies. Like I'm talking about clones in the movies where they basically have no mind of their own they're kind of just vessels for us to like harvest their organs whereas like clones in real life are kind of just like a twin yeah like they're mm. made out of i think the chance that we get to the movie clones uh through some sort of means that isn't like just whacking them in the head hard or something like that <laughs> is probably low well i want to get to dr degray and i believe something is being done today with meat that is in that same uh ballpark so dr degray mm. Okay, so, um, well, first of all, I, I suppose I should deal with the clones question first properly. So <laughs> it is technologically plausible to create animals with no brains whatsoever. In other words, with the rest of the body being entirely fine, entirely you know, mm -hmm. developing in the normal way, 
but with absolutely no nervous, no central nervous system. Um, and, you know, people have talked about the possibility of actually doing this on purpose in order to provide, as you say, you know, organs from something, because it's basically like, it's just like growing an artificial liver in the lab, mm -hmm. except mm -hmm. you grow all the organs at the same time. Um, <clears throat> And, but of course, you know, the question whether there's an ethical question there is, you know, do the organs still function the same without a brain? Oh, that's the idea. Yes. I mean, of course, there might be subtle differences. But that's what I was wondering. Yeah, if there was some sort of weird second order effect. It would be very second order indeed. Um, but when it comes to meat, yes, absolutely. There's an enormous amount of interest right now in artificial meat, um, which is generally at this point of course grown from like plant material like soy but which could certainly be grown from mammalian cells um and a lot of a lot of the work that's going on right now is designed to do exactly that the companies that are already around developing these things are getting a lot of investment not because they have a market yet to speak of but because the science is moving rapidly enough that it seems highly likely that we will be able to generate uh, meat that uh, burgers, where, whether it's burgers or even steaks, you know, things with an actual um, structure hmm. that are um, just as tasty and... Um, what is it, kosher? Uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, just as tasty as meat that comes from a living animal. And, of course, there are a couple of reasons why that would be extremely desirable. Number one would be that you um, don't have to kill animals, which a lot of people like the idea of. And the other one is that you are going to have an enormous impact on the um, production of greenhouse gases because agriculture, especially um, uh, uh, livestock agriculture, creates a great deal of greenhouse gas. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's definitely a, a desirable thing in that regard. And the science just has to get there. While I hope that uh, you are correct in uh, where we're going to be with this artificial meat, part of me, and again, this is more of the uneducated part of me, recalls 1984's Victory Coffee and other such items that had the word victory in front of them, which were given to the uh, proles and the people in the inner party were given the real stuff. They were given the real coffee that tastes amazing. While I'm not saying that that is the case with what is being done here, there is a uh, derision a lot of people, especially online, have when it comes to a lot of these meat substitutes. They're afraid that when you eat something that's been genetically created in this way, there's going to be something's going to be missing. It's not going to be the same. How much uh, legitimacy is there to those kind of arguments? Oh, I mean, there's certainly some legitimacy at the scientific level that, you know, the, the it's, it's tricky technology or else we'd have got there already. And so there will be some degree of imperfection in the stuff that's produced. But any imperfection that actually matters, there will be obviously a commercial incentive to fix that imperfection over time. So, you know, it's just like any other technology. Mm, People say that about GMOs, right? Like GMO vegetables and fruits and stuff, that they're not as nutritionally viable as non-gmo stuff yeah people say you know i remember 30 years ago when compact discs came along and people said mm. you know they just don't sound the same as vinyl but mm. uh, they still say that to this day so. oh yes i know i know I, I i i live with somebody who sells who works in a, in a record store and sells vinyl yeah. but the thing with gmos if we're talking about tomatoes a lot of the tomatoes that are on the market 
they are specifically made to last for a longer amount of time. Uh, but, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but forget, forget the GMO relevance of that. The fact is that's, that has always also been done by breeding. So I come from mm-hmm. the UK where we actually have some degree of sophistication in our understanding of tomatoes, including how to pronounce the word. Um, and, um, <laughs> and, um, and certainly we don't think much of your tomatoes. Uh, but that's not oh the yeah, the tomato, the tomatoes. I'll say, it, I'll say, it like the birds in America are horrendous, mm-hmm. and not because of GMO, just because of breeding yeah. and lack of sophistication of the American public. Yeah. Well, people that here, yeah, man. but that people does here like haven't tasted a good tomato. Sorry, I keep cutting you off. No, no, no. I completely agree. Uh, there are, except for if you go to the farmers market, you're going to have great uh, tomatoes mm-hmm. there. But mm-hmm. that is the other <laughs> side of the coin where. I understand, Dr. DeGray, that this is not really your concern, nor is this your field. This is something, though, that people are going to have to contend with, because if people are satisfied to eat these really crappy tomatoes that they get in the United States, if it doesn't bother them that they're eating something that is that subpar, if they've, you you could say, Mm -hmm. been trained from childhood to consume a lot of slop that uh, keeps getting marketed to them. Love slop. Yes, then uh, that is why... It seems like it would be easier to get people to consume even more subpar products as the years yeah, go on. I, I, just, I just can't really get behind this. The fact mm. is, you know, across the whole of life, we have people who are aficionados of this or that thing and people who are not. You know, you just mentioned coffee. I, yes. am, uh, I am a shameless coffee philistine. I can't tell the difference mm-hmm. between really good coffee and, you know, instant coffee. And that's fine with me. Whereas yeah. I am a bit of an aficionado of beer. And when I go to Mediterranean countries, the beer is so irredeemable that I drink wine. <laughs> so, um, you know, so, 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 you know, it just you know, horses for courses, as they say. Mm. Perhaps uh, you are right there. So moving on to longevity, which is... Longevity. Yes, longevity. Tomato, Longitude. longevity. We got to keep mm-hmm. score over here. So one of the things that I've been very interested in is... Uh, the stem cells where there was a recent podcast interview you did talking about how what are referred to as the uh, embryonic stem cells we Mm -hmm. don't need to take those out of uh, embryos anymore now Mm -hmm. we can create them in a different kind of way can you please talk a little bit about that what's going on there Sure. Yeah, this is a nice, simple subject. It's not particularly new news. It's like from 15 years ago, but it's a big thing. So 20 odd years ago, of course, um, there was a lot of interest in what you could do with these really, really primitive cells that you could get out of a very early embryo, uh, an embryo that was maybe five days past conception. So there were only a few hundred cells in the embryo. The cells that you get out of that were called embryonic stem cells, surprise. Um, and it turned out they were terribly useful in terms of um, the potential for biomedical um, research and for eventual medical use. But the only way you could get them was by destroying these five-day-old embryos. And a lot of people felt that, you know, that wasn't a good thing. Um, so this all changed like it was completely wiped out, really, in 2006 when a Japanese group uh, was able to figure out how to take regular cells, not even adult stem cells, just adult normal cells, and wind back their developmental clock. So essentially, you turn them back into the um, type of cell that we're talking about here. And the way that worked was essentially by mimicking what happens in the, in the, in the fertilized egg immediately after fertilization. So what you've got there, of course, you've got a union of two very specialized cells, a sperm and an egg, right? Those are very unusual cells. 
and they've got to kind of have their whole genome reset in some way so that they can so that the, the the new cell that is formed by the fertilization process can become everything right and so that's exactly what happens this kind of wiping of the slate what's called the epigenetic slate um and so the trick that this Japanese group figured out how to do was to do that to regular cells that were not sperm or eggs, but any old cell. And it's essentially doing the same thing because wiping a slate, it doesn't matter what's written on the slate, right? Um, uh, and it works. It works. It's pretty easy to do. You know, everyone does it all over the world now. It's got enormous utility. And it means and the cells that you create, they're not exactly like embryonic stem cells, but they're as close as necessary. So you can use these for all the same biomedical purposes that embryonic stem cells used to be necessary for, and you don't have to destroy any embryos. It's got the additional advantage that you can do this with cells that you take out of the person that you're eventually going to give the resulting cells back to. And that means that you can avoid immune rejection. It's called an autologous stem cell transplant. That was possible in the days of uh, before IPS, before before this discovery, but it involved an extraordinarily difficult process called somatic cell nuclear transfer, which again, you know, has been pretty much obviated now. Wow. I don't even know where to start there. The uh, only thing I could do <laughs> is uh, bring it to Dentavius, Lucas, or Gennady. Any follow-up questions related to that? So in the... Uh... When they figured out how to revert everything back to their original stem cells, if I remember, they didn't have a specific, like, understanding of the process that they were chasing there. Like, they didn't have, like, a high-level understanding as much as they were just, like, trying to mimic, kind of in, in your sense, right? Like, you you have a very, uh, I would say, like, pragmatic engineer-based approach in your book. It seems like you don't necessarily care too much about the uh, the theory as much if you can get the results by understanding the function and all that stuff. Uh, and they, they didn't really understand like, oh, we're going to add this one specific thing to uh, try and fill in this one spot in the chain. They were just like, uh, well, it happens in embryos. So maybe if we just try and make another embryo, it'll happen again. That's pretty much right. Yes. Basically what the group did, uh, Shenya Yamanaka and his people, um, they went and looked at the very early embryo where this whole resetting of sperm and egg genomes was happening. And they said, okay, what proteins are abundant in there? And, and they, like, they didn't know which of those abundant proteins were the active ingredients, but they knew that some of them had to be, or they thought at least it's likely that the more abundant proteins would be the ones that mattered. So they just got as many as they could. And they started with a couple of dozen proteins. And it worked. They, put, they, they, they did the most extraordinarily tricky and laborious experiment to cause cells to make, you know, a, a, unnatural amounts of all of this couple of dozen proteins all at the same time and it worked it drove the developmental clock backwards so then they carried on they trying to kind of pared it down they said okay they divided the 24 or whatever it was cell uh, genes into two they said okay do these 12 work do those 12 work they tried it in permutations and eventually they got down to four um, proteins that needed to be that were necessary in order to make the whole thing work and of course, people have gone on since then. It turns out you can just about get away with three. Works better if you have six. You know, so there's, there's a bunch of things that have been done since. But that was the essential idea. And I think you're absolutely right. They did not try initially to figure out why it worked. They just found out what worked. Mm, and that seems to be uh, your approach as well, Dr. DeGray, when, oh, yeah. when it comes to research. This is a bit of a curveball, but something that I'm going to regret not asking because of the people who I know who uh, suffer from this. When it comes to 
things like multiple sclerosis, for example, where the immune system is attacking uh, uh, the brain. What are some of the latest findings right now in terms of being able to reverse this and especially to grow that, uh, what do you call it, like that fatty uh, tissue inside of the brain back? Right. So actually, let me answer that question a little more generally, because there are various aspects of um, aging that are in one way or another immune problems. And uh, some of them are actually not so much aspect of aging. They tend to ha start to happen anyway relatively early in life, but they get worse late in life because the immune system becomes basically less um, precise. Um, so in general, the, the decline of the immune system is a very pervasive aspect of aging. It even contributes to the increased prevalence of cancer in the elderly because um, the immune system defends us against cancer very powerfully in early life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we have to fix this. We totally have to fix this. And a lot of that revolves around um, restoring the ability of the immune system to create the right kind of cell, this very, very wide variety of cells that allows us to um, develop um, immunity against particular infections, for example. Uh, uh, this is called the adaptive component of the immune system. Um, uh, but there's other aspects as well. There are the accumulation of cells that are kind of, they seem to be the right kind of cell, but they don't quite do the right thing. And they may even secrete stuff that's actively bad. So we need to get rid of those cells. There are various types of ways in which we need to um, rejuvenate the immune system. And then, of course, you're quite right that the um, problems with the immune system can lead to you know, permanent damage that's progressive. And in many cases, we may need to actually go in and directly repair the damage that's already been done, as well as preventing the immune system from doing the damage again, so to speak. But yes, it's you know, the, the details are very complicated and different in different tissues. Uh, somebody mentioned uh, what in the chat. And by the way, uh, be sure to send those super chats our way for uh, the uh, later part uh, where the questions will be answered. But uh, an elephant in the room was mentioned which I probably should not say on the video because we don't want the video to be taken down, but it was a recent thing about uh, two years ago that this occurred and we've been living under it ever since uh, without uh, making uh, the elephant uh, charge through the, uh, through the tea shop by uh, talking about it, specifically mentioning the names. Would you be able to give us your thoughts on what exactly has been going on as well as uh, in as um, careful of a language as he possibly can, what you think is being done right now with how it is being addressed? What? Uh, I thought <laughs> I was, was going to say that was too vague. Uh, you were way too vague, man. The... I thought it was being uh, clever in how I said it. Uh, Let me try to characterize it. I would it is yes the condition that has defined much of human life since about March 2020. It rhymes with bovid. <laughs> so what do you want me to tell you about this? Any uh, general thoughts you have on uh, what direction things are going right now? and uh, whether... Is the yes. vaccine going to kill me whoa, whoa, this year whoa. or next whoa. year? Careful, careful. No, no, you can right. say it. I, I, have a very, I have a perfectly conventional view about vaccines for COVID or for anything else. That these vaccines have already saved a vast number of lives 
that, like any experimental medicine, especially one that was developed and brought to the general public extremely rapidly, there are inevitably going to be the occasional uh, adverse events. You know, this happens with very, very um, uh, established medicines as well. And it's inevitably going to happen with ones that are very new. But the number of lives that have been saved by the COVID vaccine is absolutely astronomical. And indeed, COVID now, um, I think the latest statistics are that we're down around a total of only about a thousand deaths per day worldwide, which is like 1% of what the peak was, if not more than that. Um, so, you know, we're, we're getting there. Uh, I think that there is something else I'd like to say about COVID, though, that is quite important here. Because as we know, COVID affects the elderly very disproportionately. Now, of course, most infections affect the elderly disproportionately, but COVID is an extreme case. And the, uh, you know, as COVID becomes increasingly a thing of the past, governments all around the world, of, of whatever flavor, are going to be turning their attention to the question of the next pandemic, because they know there's going to be one. It's just like, you know, it's bound to happen. Uh, you know, we dodged half a dozen really, really big bullets before COVID came along with SARS and MERS and, you know, avian flu and so on. We just got really lucky with those ones because they were infections with a short latency period. In other words, where the time between when you caught it and when you exhibited symptoms was really short. And that meant that they didn't get about very much. COVID had a somewhat greater latency period and that was what made it a pandemic. But we got incredibly lucky with COVID because COVID's actually not nearly so bad for you as SARS or MERS or, or Ebola, for example. So, um, you know, next time we might not get lucky and governments are going to be thinking about that. Now, what are they going to do? Now, it comes back to the question of um, the fact that the elderly are the worst affected by most infections. What they should be doing, therefore, what governments should be doing is putting the pedal to the metal in an extreme way in terms of research and development of ways to do exactly what we were talking about a moment ago, the rejuvenation of the immune system to get the elderly people, the, elderly, the immune systems of the elderly to work as well as they do in young adults. If you do that, you have basically preempted every pandemic that's ever going to happen in the future. And that would be quite a good idea. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And I wish there could have been more of a focus on being able to take care of one's immune system from the beginning, but that did not appear to be the uh, focus. Only thing well, I'm... let me yeah. stop you there, okay. because the point, the point is, it wasn't a case of choosing not to do something. It was a case of people really, the science wasn't there. Mm. We just happen to be in this situation right now where over the past five years... Uh-oh. They got him. Well, Aubrey de Grey is going to be... Here we go. Back. Yes, they almost got you there, but you're back. I have no mm. idea what you're talking about. What happened? The uh, camera I think he's froze. just referring to your connection dropping. Oh, okay. I'm yes. sorry. That no problem. Should, should I repeat that? Sure. Okay, so I was just saying, you shouldn't be talking here about the um, about any kind of choice that government's made. The, the thing right now is that over the past literally five years or so, there's been really big advances in our understanding of how we might actually go about rejuvenating the immune system of the elderly, which we could not have done 10 years ago. We just didn't know enough. So now we're in a position where we can throw proper money at this problem with the expectation that that money will actually deliver benefit, which we couldn't have done. I uh, agree with you there. The only thing I would add is, in general, at least in the United States, the approach to medicine seems to be 
trying to fix a problem once the problem has occurred as opposed to getting yourself to such a state that your own body would be able to prevent certain problems from occurring. Yeah, okay, so let me address that for a little while because that's an incredibly important point and it's by no means specific to the US. It's the same mm -hmm. in, you know, in Western Europe or the UK where I grew up where it's, it's nothing to do with the fact that the US has a private healthcare system driven by insurance, which a lot of people, you know, blame it on that. It's not that at all. It's also not because of the regulatory um, bodies like the Food and Drug Administration they get all the bad rap, but it's not their fault because they're just implementing the law. Now, you have to ask, you know, why is the law the law? And the answer is uh, because of the public. You know, if the public were, did not have such a phobia about preventative medicine, then they would want legislation that placed a greater emphasis on preventative medicine. And the FDA would follow suit and the pharmaceutical company would follow suit because they'd follow the money and so on. So it's all the public's fault, really. Mm. And that's why I spend a lot of my time trying to educate people to understand that the health problems of late life, the slowly chronic progressive problems that we see when we've been born a long time ago, are ones that can only be prevented by being preempted, by actually treating them preventatively. That's uh, asking quite a lot out of people, but I definitely appreciate <laughs> being able to spread it at least uh, to those who have ears uh, who will listen. Although most people probably want it to be that they could just do a bunch of bad things to their body over time, deteriorate it, and then be able to take a magic pill and then have everything go back to normal. Oh, well, let, let me make sure you understand me, because I'm not saying that everybody has to behave well. Uh, the point about this kind of approach, this rejuvenation approach, is it is damage repair. It takes people who've already accumulated a bunch of molecular and cellular damage and it removes that damage. So that means that when these therapies arrive and they get pretty good, you will be able to spend a fair amount of your life in McDonald's and get away with it. It's just that the right time to um, be applying these therapies so that you don't get sick is before you get sick rather than waiting until you've actually had a heart attack. So that's something that awaits us in the future. I can't help but think that there's something that's going to go wrong with uh, that approach of being able mm -hmm. to eat all this fast food and all this junk and then being able to take care of that. But I don't know. That's that's in yeah. the future. We're going to see what happens. In the present, hopefully, though, yes. Yeah. Hopefully, we, I can start smoking again. <laughs> I so I have... Not yet. Anyway. That was that was like chapter one of uh, his book was <laughs> don't smoke. It's bad. I have uh, two questions. Is there any proof for that? Oh, go on, Janata. Yes. Yes. I have two questions for Aubrey regarding the disease which we were recently discussing. And the first question is, do you think it would be possible, especially within the next two or three years or so, to completely eradicate this disease, whether through some sort of genetic engineering approach or the disease going away on its own through some sequence of events. And the second question pertains to the so-called long form of that disease, which unfortunately can affect people of all demographics and health levels, prior health levels. Do you think that we are within striking distance of figuring out what causes the very disparate effects of the long form of that disease. And 
what could be some promising approaches to alleviate those effects because many millions of people are suffering from them. All right. So on the first question, uh, are we, uh, you know, do we have much of a chance of actually eliminating this disease overall? This is a question of epidemiology. And honestly, no questions of that nature can ever be answered, even by epidemiologists, and I'm not one. Right. I mean, you know, if we look at the history of polio, for example, uh, or smallpox, you know, we got we, we manage it with smallpox. We haven't quite managed it with polio. You know, this is the kind of thing that you just can't predict because so many factors, of course, sociological ones as well as biological ones come in. So I honestly don't. And of course, in the case of viruses, you've got such enormous amount of um, evolution going on. I'm talking especially about retroviruses like, like COVID, um, where you know, the, the genetic material is, is highly unstable relative to DNA viruses. And, you know, so, so honestly, you know, there's absolutely no, no way to answer that question. Uh, now, with long COVID, actually, I'm afraid I can't do much better because the fact is, I mean, again, this is not an area that I'm really expert on, but the latest I understand is that still we know almost nothing about why, about what distinguishes people who have severe symptoms, people who have less severe symptoms from COVID, people who have long-term symptoms, people who don't. Honestly, it's, as far as I can tell, I can tell a complete mystery still. So there's really, it's, obviously, it's being worked on very heavily, but there's no point in speculating. Oh, by the way, Dr. DeGray, Dan Elton made a good point here, just so you understand uh, why Janati uh, was avoiding uh, using that word, is because of YouTube's overzealous censoring uh, system. So when it detects certain words, it may not bring this video to as many uh, eyes. So that's oh. why I'm always trying. It's one of those unfortunate things that we have to uh, contend with uh, here. But uh, with that... There is one final... Yes. But, but, but Lev, you've always got the opportunity of saying the thing that sounds a bit like Dante's name, Dantavius's name, you know, because... Right. Yes, yeah, that, yes, that, work, that right? is true. Well, there is the thing that sounds a lot like Dantavius's uh, name. One other question related to it was asked by what, which is, what do you think is the origin of something that is like Dantavius's name? At this and point, we'll, yes. oh god! At this point, I think the overall the overall balance of probability is very strongly that it came from animals in this one market in Wuhan. But honestly, who gives a damn? You know, it's like saying, you know, um, you know, does aging exist for an evolutionary purpose? You know, I don't give a flying hmm. fuck whether evolution whether aging exists for an evolutionary purpose. I still want to fix it. Hmm. That is a good way of going about it. I guess for the people who are curious as to why it has more to do with uh, how we, for example, prevent, to use an analogy, a robbery from occurring in a certain uh, neighborhood. If we found mm -hmm. out where exactly the robber came mm -hmm. from, then we'd be able to address that particular instance and make sure it doesn't happen in the future. It doesn't mean we prevent all robberies from happening, but at least mm -hmm. it gives us something to focus on, if that makes sense. So that would be my analogy there. But back to uh, longevity. Hope I said it correctly this time around. Excellent. So one thing I think is on a lot of people's minds is whether the haves, whether the elites have access to certain technology that mm, the proles do I was not. Gonna ask that, I was going to ask that same question. Yeah, but I beat Peter you to Hill. it. Yes. Yeah. So um, this is actually a far easier question than most people think. And it honestly surprises me that, I, that, that the people don't realize this. At the moment, today, in the world where we don't have therapies to keep people healthy when they were born a long time ago, 
we are spending the most spectacular amount of money across the whole industrialized world on the health problems of late life. In fact, probably 80 or 85 percent of the medical budget of the Western world goes on those problems. So what we what what we would be seeing in the scenario where these things were invented would be a choice given to governments of either allowing the free market to limit the availability of these things by ability to pay or to front load the investment necessary to ensure that everybody who is old enough to need those therapies can actually get them irrespective of ability to pay now it seems at least to most American ears, very counterintuitive to think that the government would go the latter way because it's, you know, it's a bit um, antithetical to the way that healthcare is distributed these days. Um, but the fact is that it's bound to happen that that's the way that every country, whatever its preferences in terms of distribution of wealth, will go, simply because it would be economically suicidal not to. Even when these therapies are first developed and are of necessity quite expensive to deliver, they will still be far, far less expensive than the alternative of not delivering them and having to keep the sick people alive with current medicine. It's just like it's a completely ironclad mercenary economic argument. Even if you completely leave out the humanitarian imperative and the electoral imperative, it's just like the, the country would just go bankrupt because other countries mm. will that these things are available. Uh, Lucas and Tavius, any follow-up to that? Yeah, well, kind of, no. <laughs> I, was I, have a, I have a separate question. All right, before yeah, we get I to the separate question. separate question. Yeah, Lucas and Gennady, any follow-up? Okay, so... I do have a follow-up yes. uh, to this conversation because I think a relevant idea that you have articulated, Aubrey, is that within a few years, there is likely to be an inflection point in terms of public attitudes toward the reversal of biological aging, whereas now the majority public view is still that the arrival of such technologies is fairly remote if it is attainable at all. You think this is going to change within a few years and then societal perceptions of the imperative to reverse biological aging are also going to change. So could you please elaborate on what you think the influences upon that change are going to be? Yeah, thank you, Gunnar. This is actually a very important point. The um, situation we have today, of course, is that there are medicines that are expensive and that are definitely limited in access by ability to pay, both in the US and in single-payer systems like Western Europe. And the reason that is tolerated by society is simply because the medicines basically don't work. All they do is they like they keep people alive in a, a little bit longer in a poor state of health, you know. So there's not much real, you know, issue here, uh, which is completely different from what we're talking about. So um, Gennady points out that what's likely to happen in the in the run-up to the arrival of these therapies is that there will be understanding that we are in the run-up. At the moment, people mostly think, you know, it's science fiction. But there will be a point where people say, you know what, these are coming. And Oprah Winfrey will be out there saying, you know, let's make them come sooner and so on. And honestly, I'm not looking forward to that transitional period because it's going to be a bit turbulent. It's going to be a very sudden transition from where we are now in terms of public attitudes to that anticipatory 
phase. And that's going to happen, I believe, very suddenly, simply because it's going to be driven by people like me. I've been out there saying for a long time that this is coming, but basically all of my other expert colleagues have been very much more cautious because they've got more, you know, they've got to worry about being fired from their faculty positions and stuff like that. Um, so um, that's going to change. You know, as time goes on and the science progresses incrementally forward, it becomes more and more possible to say more and more courageous things. One or two of my colleagues have started to say slightly more courageous things already, like David Sinclair wrote a book a couple of years ago whose subtitle was Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. He could not have written that book 10 years ago. He'd have been fired, right? Um, uh, but this is going to reach a tipping point quite soon, I believe, in the next few years, when most of my colleagues are going to be out there saying, yeah, you know what, it's only a matter of time. And exactly how long, how, how much time is going to be a, you know, there's going to be a spectrum of opinion among, among, among us. But, uh, but that's okay. The point is, if everybody's saying it's only a matter of time, that's going to be the tipping point where all of the so-called you know, excuses for aging, the reasons people give for thinking, for claiming that aging is a blessing in disguise, like, you know, death gives meaning to life and so on. You know, these things are just going to be completely forgotten overnight. So I really want governments, decision makers, policymakers around the world to what I call anticipate that anticipation. I want them to actually see this coming and have the ability to manage it and to, throw, you know, to switch, you know, uh, spending policy and so on in an appropriate direction. Uh, Dr. DeGray, what would you say would that society look like if we're talking, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years from now, one concern people uh, think about is, well, there's going to be so much people in the world, but at the same time, maybe they're going to be having less children. How does society balance itself out so that people are going to be able to exist for a longer time? I know you said that they're not going to be a burden on the healthcare system because of the their state of not being so sick all the time, so that's good. But otherwise, what would that society look like, and would yeah, it be a concern yeah. to you? Yes. So this is another thing that comes up all the time, of course. People say, oh, dear, where will we put all the people? But, um, but it's the wrong question, really, because right now, the problem we have, we have an overpopulation problem globally right now, but it doesn't arise from not having enough space. There's enough space for everyone to have their own acre, even if you only count the places that are nice to live. Uh, so what is the problem? The problem is, of course, pollution. The fact is we're burning too many greenhouse gases and, you know, you know, too many plastics that can't be destroyed and so on. And technology is on the way to fix those things um, already. You know, the technology to really fix those things is going to be here way before the technology to, to uh, prevent aging has caused any significant change in the global population. So it's honestly just, just not thinking through the actual nature of the problem. Would there be any concern you would have for, let's say, the education of a lot of people who would be living on the earth when it comes mm -hmm. to having m many places today where there's just way too many people who are cooped up to uh, you know these very tiny spaces and they don't have as much of an opportunity to grow and prosper as a lot of uh, people do in you know sure, environments. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm all over that. I mean, I think it's absolutely clear that we definitely need to allocate a lot of the prosperity that we create by eliminating aging and so on uh, to education, absolutely. Ed education ultimately is the vehicle, the, the route towards having a fulfilling life. And 
as life changes, not just through the elimination of aging, but especially through the elimination of work on account of automation, you know, and a, a whole different structure of an economy in terms of distribution of wealth that isn't driven by the assumption of full employment, uh, you know, there's going to be a requirement for people to have other ways to gain self-worth. And education is absolutely instrumental to that. A bit of a controversial uh, addition to that question. If we assume for a second that most people, unless you force them, are going to say, you know what, I have this nice life, I don't have to do anything, I don't have to do anything for work, I'm just going to sit around, eat Cheetos all day and play video games. If that's going to be, <laughs> does if that's going to be what a lot of people in the coming years are going to be more tuned towards, how do you get people who don't want to get to a higher level in terms of education? How do you get them to actually participate in their own, uh, you know, in their own rising, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not a sociologist, right? So you know, you shouldn't really be asking me this question. But the fact is, I've always assumed that peer pressure is quite a powerful thing. You know, that people in general, they want to have a life that they are as happy with as the people they hang out with. And if they've got access to ways to improve how they can make the most of their existence, then there's, that's, there's going to be an incentive to, 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 to take advantage of that. I agree. Yes. And even though and you're not a sociologist, you are a very wise man. So I feel right. like like Miyamoto Musashi, when you become really good at one thing, it doesn't mean that you're going to be an expert in everything else, but you're going to be wise enough to understand the things that are tangential to uh, what your specialty is as well. At least I believe that. Well, thank you. Yes. And <laughs> I definitely agree with your assessment of Aubrey, Lev. I would add on the question of human motivations, my suspicion is that for many people, the perceived inclination toward laziness or dissipative activities is actually a temporary consequence of otherwise being quite overworked. And people see that as kind of their outlet to do the opposite of that for a while. But I think in reality, if the need to work for a living disappeared and people had through sustainable superabundance, which is a major goal of transhumanism, the ability to satisfy all of their daily needs and wants. After maybe two weeks or a month, they would start to think, well, just sitting around and doing nothing amidst that superabundance is no longer an appealing proposition. And they would try to figure out constructive outlets for their time, as in mm -hmm. now that I've had all of the prior levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs satisfied, whatever one thinks of that framework, I think something similar is indeed operative in human beings. Now what? Now it's about self-actualization. Now it's about what I can bring to the broader world. And so I think people will find sources of meaning and ways to occupy their time. So before we get to, and thank you for that, Janata, before we get to the uh, questions of Dentavius and Lucas, I want to remind everyone that we are approaching uh, towards the end here. If there are any super chats, if there are any questions you want to ask the great Aubrey de Grey, send those super chats right now and those questions shall be addressed. So let's go to uh, Lucas. What question do you have, Lucas? Lucas. 
I had a question generally about like fibrosis and organs. Uh, this was something that I was really reading a lot about maybe like a decade ago and I have totally stopped, but do you have a stance on whether or not we can basically reverse fibrosis in any organ? I, I was thinking specifically kidneys, but, uh, have we gotten anywhere with that? I think I yeah. saw one really small, like N equals like 50 study where they managed to, uh, reverse kidney mm -hmm. fibrosis by just pumping them full of mega doses of ACE inhibitors, but I haven't seen anything since then. And I don't think anyone's replicated that. Yeah, there's a lot more to do. So um, essentially fibrosis is a, 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 is one of the many aspects of how the body works that a lot of people believe is part of our anti-cancer mechanism. A lot of, in fact, a huge amount of how the body works is a kind of trade-off where you know, you'd kind of prefer to be more regenerative, but you need to defend against cells dividing inappropriately and becoming more progressively more prone to divide more inappropriately. And fibrosis is something that you don't see in the early embryo, but eventually it kicks in. And uh, it, so when a cell dies, it kind of gets replaced by scar tissue instead of by the division of another cell. Um, so what we need to do, absolutely, is to develop ways to essentially manipulate uh, the cells that we have that know how to, that have the genetic ability to uh, break down fibrotic material and replace them, replace it with functional material, but to do it in a controlled manner. And, um, you know, that's obviously a lot easier said than done, uh, but absolutely, there's plenty of people working on it. And uh, Dentavius, your question. My question is, okay, so there's this big craze, I don't know if you're familiar with with this about like eating nothing but meat like an all meat diet carnivore diet carnivore diet it's like I, I, in my head this is the craziest thing ever but i, I want to know your thoughts on that as well as like how much diet actually contributes to longevity because i was just reading um so outliers by malcolm gladwell and he was talking about this city in in pittsburgh and everybody was like smoking cigarettes. There were all these like Italian immigrants that were smoking cigarettes and drinking wine and like eating pastries all the time. But their like incidents of heart disease and other um, you know diseases that people would get when they're older was much lower because they were socializing more. They had a more of a sense of a community and accomplishment compared to other cities in the U.S. Yeah, well, so um, I didn't hear about Pittsburgh, but there are plenty of other... Um, or not Pittsburgh, but Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, uh, I, um, I mean, there are certainly plenty of other places around the world that have a reputation for living unusually long. But mm -hmm. we have to remember that they don't live all that much longer than everybody else. You know, mm -hmm. a couple of years here and there. Um, and, you know, the, the reasons are different in different places. Like... Loma Linda is one of these places. You know, they don't drink, they don't smoke. Uh, a lot of people like to say that they eventually die of boredom. The, um, uh, you know, the, in, uh, there's this island off the southern tip of Japan called Okinawa, where they have mm -hmm. a culture of eating less than they would really like to eat. And mm -hmm. uh, it seems to be good for them, on top of the fact that, of course, they, um, they eat a good diet with a lot of fish in it and so on. Yeah. Uh, France too, right? I think there's uh, like well, that's right. So there's something called the French paradox, mm -hmm. which says basically, you know, the French really ought to live less long than the British because the fact is they eat all this fatty food and they drink too much wine and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not true; they actually live a bit longer than the British. Um, so mm -hmm. it, you know, it's 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 like um, there's a lot of mysteries here. But the 
key thing for me is the magnitude of these differences. These are really small differences. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it's not really what I work on. I work on doing on fixing the problem properly. And when mm-hmm. we talk about other extra, uh, other unusual diets, like a carnivore diet or indeed intermittent fasting or, you know, various other diets that, are, that, that have uh, a lot of been written about, again, you know, we don't see much of a difference. I do personally mm-hmm. also think that a carnivore diet sounds pretty weird. Uh, you know, it sounds like you'd have difficulty getting enough vitamin C, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've met people who do it, and they seem to be okay. So, you know, there's no knowing. Yeah, I mean, Jordan Peterson, something's going on with him right now. I know back in the day we used to say, uh, Jordan Peterson, when to go psychosis, don't look into it. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm not going <laughs> to say any more about that. <laughs> so... Uh, I think that we are approaching the end here. My final question has to do with people who are pretty elderly, let's say about 80 years old. What can be done right now, you know, for our grandmas and grandpas, people who are of that age, especially when they're dealing with problems with blood pressure and all these things, what can be done at this moment with what we currently have right now to start fixing a lot of these uh, issues. Okay, well, let me be a bit radical here. What you should do is you sign them up to be cryopreserved. Um, because <laughs> the fact is, cryonics is a real thing. It isn't as real as we'd like it to be. In other words, the damage done by the cryopreservation process is still a lot more than we would like it to be. And a couple of the projects at LEV Foundation are focused on addressing that, on greatly reducing the amount of damage that is done by cryopreservation. But the fact is, once cryopreservation really works well, once cryonics works well, it's going to save a hell of a lot of lives. We're going to be able to take people who have only just been declared legally dead, which, of course, in real terms means not actually dead, but rather beyond the reach of today's medicine. And um, also beyond the reach of student debt and student loan payments. Well, there's that. There's that. I mean, the reason the thing about, <laughs> the thing about cryonics is that because uh, once you're legally dead, you're officially dead, uh, you can pay for it with life insurance. And that's what most people do do. Mm. So um, it's not actually particularly unaffordable at all. So this is something... Yeah, that... I'm looking it up now. It's only like $200,000, oh. which is a lot less than, than I expected. Well, yeah, that's right. And that's for, get, that's for the high end. You know, you can get cryopreserved um, less well for $30,000. Uh, but the point mm. is, if you're, let's say... if you Just throw you in the freezer of a butcher shop... <laughs> If you're forty, if you're forty, and you sign, I was forty when I signed up to be uh, with, with mm-hmm. one of the providers, Alcor, and I only pay forty dollars a month. You know, hmm. it's not bad. The oh, most famous, and it'll get more cheaper too as it goes on. The most famous person I've heard who was cryogenically preserved, allegedly urban legend, is uh, Walt Disney. Is that in case mm. the fact? That, that is an urban legend. Walt Disney was not cryopreserved, mm. but Ted Williams was, and. Mm. Um, uh, uh, the famous uh, pioneer of crypto, whose name I forget now. Gennady, you may be able to Hal help Finney. me. Thank you. He was. Yes. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And various people, various other well-known people are signed up. Ray Kurzweil, for example. Now, before going down that path, if we're just talking about extending the life that uh, the elderly in our life currently have, what would be certain things that exist right now? I mean, there's probably a bunch to choose from, but what would be certain things that just come to your mind right now that could possibly be used? Yeah, unfortunately, there really isn't anything to choose from. You know, at the moment, people who are within a few years of dying because they've already gone downhill very substantially, 
there's really, you know, we just have to rely on what we have. And there's nothing, I'm, it's not my area. You know, I don't work on stuff that we already have. I, I understand. Just thought, you know what? I'm going to ask, find out what happens. So I believe, so, yes. Oh, I have a question yes, in terms of perhaps accelerating the arrival of the time when we do have some reliable, workable therapies. You've mentioned, Aubrey, that the bottleneck in the field has shifted from one of funding to one of talent. And I think some of the audience members of this show might actually be promising individuals to consider if they have been thinking of a career in biology or related fields, what would you say to people to attract them to, especially working on longevity? Well, Gennady, thank you so much for bringing that up. It's a very, very important issue right now, because you're quite right. Uh, over the past several years, there has been an enormous influx of money, especially over the past couple of years into the field, uh, especially in the private sector, but also in the philanthropic sector. So I'm not saying we've got enough money, but we've certainly got much less of a problem of, rate, of the, the rate of progress being limited by money than we used to have. And as a result, talent, as you say, is the thing. Now, it's biologists, absolutely. I want biologists to choose the right area to do their research in. But it's also people with other talents, entrepreneurs especially. We definitely need far more people who have entrepreneurial credentials and exp experience to partner with people who know how to work at the pets and to, uh, you know, to form uh, startup companies that actually look attractive to investors because they do actually cover, you know, they tick the boxes rather than just being one academic who wouldn't, couldn't run a company to save his life. Um, and it's not just those, you know, there's journalists, there's advocates of various sorts. Um, and for this reason, I put a bit of effort maybe 18 months ago into creating a new initiative in this area, which um, I did in uh, uh, collaboration with one of my early protégés, a brilliant man named Mark Hammerlinen. Uh, he ran with it, and it became a fantastic retreat that was run about three months ago. It was called Less Death. You can look it up, lessdeath.org. Um, and uh, it was such a fantastic blowout success that, first of all, um, he doesn't even need my money anymore because other people are, putting, uh, are throwing uh, funding into it. But also, you know, it's going to be running like three or four times a year. It's really, you know, making an enormous mm. difference. And I believe that the next next iteration of it, which is happening in mid-January in the uh, just north of San Francisco, uh, is accepting applications right now. They'll be taking, I don't know, maybe 50 people. Um, so absolutely, anybody in the audience who is interested in, uh, you know, contributing to this field and who has whatever kind of talent, it doesn't matter what kind you have, uh, this is the best way to, first of all, gain the knowledge that you don't have in other areas that are relevant and also to meet the right people with whom to collaborate and partner and get stuff done. So uh, Dentavius and Lucas, if uh, the uh, streaming and podcasting doesn't work out, there's always uh, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. If, if the day job doesn't work out, if the, the podcast side hustle doesn't work out, you've got a plan C. Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're going to get I'm it gonna, done. I'm just going to freeze myself now and <laughs> see what happens. 
Yeah. Now, related to that, my final, final, final question uh, for you, Dr. Gray, and I really appreciate you spending this time here on Break the Rules, where we bring sure. everybody together from all these different, like, Dentavius, Lucas, Aubrey, Gennady. I mean, Aubrey and Gennady, they have something to do with each other, obviously. Gennady's part of the LEV Foundation, but Dentavius and Lucas from completely different spheres, spheres, and that is what I love. I love to bring people together who otherwise would never do so, and that is the mission of BTR. And by the way, if you guys want to support BTR, number one, need those super chats, and number two, become a patron, patreon.com slash break the rules. You're going to get episodes of the show as an MP3 format after they come out. You're going to get Patreon-exclusive streams and episodes as well, and you are going to get access to the secret areas of the BTR Discord, which I highly recommend everybody join in general. I'm going to have a link for it in the uh, chat. So my final question has to do with, uh, and again, this may not be an answerable question, but it may be something that you've thought about. Let's say you, Aubrey, live for as long as possible. What do you think would be your reaction to life? Do you think that you would be the same person you are right now? Some people are scared that if people live too long, they're going to start to get mad. They're going to start to not really know what to do. It'll be like a, a portrait of Dorian Gray type of situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not saying that is the case, but for you personally, what do you envision would happen to you and to other people that are going to be around you the longer you remain on the planet Earth? Yeah, I, I'm a fan of Johnny Mitchell. So I, I, I hold to the view that something's lost and something's gained in living every day. Uh, I, I, I don't think about the distant future. I just don't. I haven't any idea. For, if people often ask me, for example, how long do you want to live? To me, that's a dumb question. Because having an opinion about how long you want to live, even about whether you want to live to 100 when you're only 59 like me, is like having an opinion about you know what time you want to go to the toilet on Christmas Day. You know, it's like... Um, you know, you know that you're going to have more uh, more information on the topic nearer the time. So it's dumb to have mm. an opinion now. Um, oh, I already know the answer to that. But... <laughs> oh, yeah, you may know the opinion, have an opinion <laughs> about what time you expect to go to the toilet mm. on, a, on a kind of you know habit, but what time you want to not, want to go, that would be crazy, right? So, um, you know, I, 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 I take that view. I take life uh, one day, one year at a time. But I also invest my time in making sure that I will be able to make subsequent choices uh, in the more distant future. Will you ever shave your beard in the future? <laughs> uh, well, a long time ago, maybe 20 years ago, I said that I would shave my beard if somebody paid me a million dollars into my foundation. To, um, ah, there we go. But I think I've upped the price at this point. Oh, well, I, my, and I do love the wizard beard. And I do wonder, do you feel different having this beard as opposed to when you were beardless? Honestly, I don't remember how, I mean, it was 32 when I grew this beard. So honestly, I don't remember. Ah, all right, fair enough. And we do have a super chat from the great Dan Elton. Five US dollars. Thank you so much, Dan. Hope this show inspires people to go into the longevity field. I hope so as well. So, guys, thank you very much. This was amazing. And final plugs for everybody. So, Lucas of the Verse and Lucas podcast, can you please tell the good people out there why should they subscribe to it? They should subscribe to it because you're going to be educated while laughing uh, and filling your heart with joy, right? There's going to be an overpouring of love for God, the world, humor, everything wrapped into one at V-E-R-S-A-N-D-L-U-K-A-S on Twitter. My ad is at S-C-H-I-Z-O underscore F-R-E-Q. And uh, that's my shill. Indeed. Dentavius. 
I know you have a uh, Patreon and you have a YouTube channel. What would you like to tell people? Why should they subscribe to The Great Dentavious? I don't know, man. I'm still trying to fig- I'm still trying to figure that out for myself. All right. Well, subscribe to Dentavious and go to Patreon. And by yeah. the way, Verse and Lucas, you guys also have a Patreon, right? We do have a Patreon, but unfortunately, I uh, honestly have no idea if we have any content on it yet. I should be shilling it to you all, uh, but this is a personal failing of mine, so I guess <laughs> I'm just generous. Uh, I don't need any money today. Just go subscribe to my Twitter. All right, subscribe to the Twitter. And uh, finally, the great Gennady Stolyarov II. Uh, wonderful to have you here as always, my friend. Uh, what would you like to promote today, and where can people find you? Yes, thank you, Lev. I would like to promote two destinations. One is the website of the U.S. Transhumanist Party, transhumanist-party.org, where you can sign up to be a member for free. It takes less than a minute to join, and you can participate in our community of now approximately 4,000 people who hold conversations about the impact of emerging technologies on our society. Indeed, some of the questions that Dantavius and Lucas posed are very much questions that we do discuss in our community on a daily basis. The other venue that I would like to call people's attention to would be our weekly virtual enlightenment salons, which are live streamed on my YouTube channel. That is youtube.com slash G Stolyarov with two eyes. So the first letter of my first name, my last name, followed by two eyes. And this is an in-depth conversational format akin to the 18th century Enlightenment salons, where we bring experts from a variety of disciplines. And we've had Aubrey as a guest several times. We've had Lev as a guest as well. And we have extremely wide-ranging conversations, not just sticking to a particular subject area, but trying to illustrate various connections. And indeed, sometimes we have gotten multiple experts together and led to further collaborations between them that hopefully will achieve some breakthroughs to come. So I would encourage everyone to tune in to our weekly virtual enlightenment salons every Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Excellent. And uh, finally, uh, well, second uh, to the final, you could find me on Twitter at LevPo, L-E-V-P-O. And again, be sure to subscribe to this podcast right here, BreakTheRules.tv. Click the bell. That's extremely important. Add a like. That helps the algorithm. And, of course, Patreon.com slash BreakTheRules. And finally, the great Aubrey de Grey. Uh, Would there be any final thoughts you would like to share as well as anything that you would like to promote and where people could find you. Well, first of all, to share, I'd just like to thank you for having me on the show. You thank know, you. it's been great fun. Uh, I'm sure that um, you have um, been able to expose uh, a new audience to the things I have to say, and I'm always grateful for that. In terms of promotion, clearly I would very much like people to visit the LEV Foundation website, levf.org. Um, it's still a bit of a, a, a bit under construction because the foundation's only existed for a short while. Uh, Gennady, of course, is one of the people I handpicked to be on my board of directors, and I'm delighted that he and the others were able to do this because 
it is absolutely vital that this foundation should be seen to contrast with my previous foundation in terms of the determination of the directors to adhere to and respect donor intent over time. We are, of course, a non-profit, a 501c3 public charity, so all donations from U.S. taxpayers are um, tax-exempt. And we have some really fantastic projects that we are moving forward with with all haste so as to bring the scourge of aging under control as quickly as possibly can happen. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you and the entire panel so much for being a part of this great experience. Next week, December 1st, we're going to be talking about Camille Paglia with Alexander Bard. Jack, the Perfume Nationalist, is coming in. And we are going to have, thanks to uh, Lucas, or thanks to Verse, I'm not sure which one of you guys did it, but we are going to have a a wonderful guest named Jane Gatsby. She is going to be joining us. Oh, Jane's going to be good. Yes, that's going to be for the uh, discussion on December 1st. Be sure not to miss it. It's going to be a lot of fun. And